Our scripture today comes from the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 1, verses 1 through 9. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the way the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. This is the word of God. About two years ago, maybe two and a half years ago, the news broke that the New Orleans Saints of all teams had not been very saintly. As a matter of fact, they had a bounty program and they were uh, paying some pretty high prices to players who would put a hurting on uh, other uh, key players on opposing teams. And as the news broke and as the discipline came down, uh, Coach uh, Payton, Sean Payton, was dismissed of his duties for a year. He could not actively coach on the field. It was uh, rather ironic that this would happen to a team in the NFL called the Saints. But the reality is that uh, Saints can at times be unsaintly. And this sermon series from the book of 1 Corinthians is called Unsaintly Saints. Those who belong to Christ, who call Christ their king, who have just sung these songs as you have stood there, who are in worship this morning because you believe that Christ is both your Lord and your Savior, it is entirely possible that you sit here this morning ridden with guilt over something you did or said this week, over the way you lost your cool or the uh, missed opportunity uh, you feel badly And here Paul refers to the entire church at Corinth as saints. Now in some churches that designation has been reserved for those who achieve a certain status. But in the New Testament it is quite clear that all those who come to faith in Christ are called saints. So if you know, belong to Christ, you are called a saint. And the question then would come, how do you become a saint? Paul says to those who call upon the name of the Lord. What does it mean? What does it look like to call upon the name of the Lord? Let me picture that for you, describe it for you. To call upon the name of the Lord is a a word picture that... Uh, could could go back to uh, being on a sinking ship 
and you are awash at sea on a sinking ship, and you know you're dying when in the distance you see a lifeboat. And when you see that lifeboat, you know that the source of your rescue is that boat. And so you call out for help uh, to that lifeboat. And as that lifeboat approaches, there are some essential things that you may not even recognize, but they're going on in you. Number one, you know you're dying. Number two, you know you need the lifeboat. Number three, you trust the lifeboat to save you. And number four, when push comes to shove, you let go of whatever plank of that sinking ship you may be holding on to, and you trust in the lifeboat to take you to safety. That's what it means to call upon the name of the Lord. You may know little about the boat, and you may know little about the way the boat works at that point. Most people who come to Christ cannot articulate a a developed theology. That isn't the point. The point is that you called out to the lifeboat, and in your despair, realized you were sinking, and you needed someone to save you, and so you came to safety through the lifeboat. That's what it means to come to Christ. You must recognize your lostness, recognize that Jesus Christ alone can save you, call out to him for your salvation, and he hears that call as he is racing to you to save you, and he pulls you into the lifeboat. Once you're in the boat, Paul talks about that. Who are you as someone who has been rescued out of the raging seas? Who are you now? Three truths. Paul says in these nine verses, Christ is mentioned incidentally nine times. Paul is trying to make a point. Christ is enough is what Paul is saying. Christ is enough, first of all, for your sanctification. What is sanctification? Sanctification is a simple, uh, it's a long word with a simple meaning. It means to become more and more like Christ. To become sanctified is to become more and more like Christ. You ought to be able to look at benchmarks in your life at certain times and say, okay, uh, am I more like Christ today than I was this time a year ago? Am I more like Christ today than I was this time five years ago? And if you can't answer yes to that question, you're headed in the wrong direction. Sanctification is the process of becoming more like Christ. Christ. Christ is enough for your sanctification, Paul says. He says you are sanctified in Christ. It's interesting, and we'll have an English lesson. Some of you are doing testing this week, so this will be a little help on a Sunday morning. We'll have an English lesson. This word sanctified is in the perfect tense. And being in the perfect tense, it refers to a past action that has effect in the present. So it's in the perfect tense, past action, effect in the present. Secondly, it's in a passive tense. It means it is done to somebody or someone is the object of the action of the verb. Holiness or sanctification is received, not achieved. That's the point. 
Sanctification is received, not achieved. Uh, you are declared sanctified here. It's a, uh, it's a perfect tense. It's been done for you and done to you by Christ. And it still has effect today. Well, some of you are thinking, well, that's good. There's nothing left for me to do. Uh, Reach out to Christ. I call out on his name. He pulls me out of the murky, dark waters, and it's smooth sailing after that. Well, there is no person in this room who's followed Christ for any length of time who would say amen to that. Amen? We just wouldn't. Why? Knowing and following Christ, if you're truly knowing and following him, is hard work. Amen? It's hard. It's hard. So what does this look like? It hails back to a picture from Joshua 1.11. If you remember the story of Joshua, he follows Moses, which is hard enough, and he follows Moses, Joshua does, and he's got to go into the promised land. So he has the people of God, not an army, but the people of God, he has on the side of the Jordan, and they've got to get to the other side. And in Joshua 1.11, there is this verse. Joshua commanded the officers of the people, pass through the midst of the camp and command the people, prepare your provisions for within three days you are to pass over this Jordan to go in to take possession of the land that the Lord your God has given you to possess. Now, here's what's interesting about that. Joshua says to the people, God's already given us the land, but guess what we got to do? Go take what he's already given us. Sanctification is a gift already given to every single believer. We just have to go take it. That's the point. God's design for you is to live above your circumstances, is to live above the sin that uh, that wrestles you to the ground. God's purpose for you is to live above that. That's sanctification. And Christ is enough not only to pull you from the waters, he is enough to get you home safely and with joy in the journey. Amen? He's enough. He is absolutely enough. And that's the point that Paul is making here. Take possession of what God is giving you to possess. So that's what growing in Christ is. It is seeing what God has already granted to you as a follower of him and saying, okay, I'm going after that. Uh, That is mine. Victory is mine, and I'm going to get it. Uh, Walking with Christ is mine, and I'm going to do it. I see this is God's plan for me, and I will live according to it. You, if you have called out to him, as Paul describes here, you're a saint. You are a saint. Uh, A friend of mine went to uh, dental school the same time I taught school and then went on to grad school. And so I was talking to him. I actually trekked over to Chapel Hill to to, uh, take in a basketball game while he was there. And we were talking and asking, and he just excelled in undergrad, but dental school was hard, really hard. And he said, Jerry, we have this saying. Uh, What do they call the guy with the lowest GPA in dental school. And I said, Scott, what is it? And he said, doctor. All right. 
What does that mean? When you go see a dentist, you don't ask his GPA, do you? Whatever it was, he's Dr. So-and-so. In heaven, what do they call the saint who struggles the most with sin? Saint. You're a saint. You may battle sin, your sin may be addiction-oriented, your sin may be attitude-oriented, but you're still a saint. Christ is enough for your sanctification. Secondly, Christ is enough for your service. Check this out. Paul says, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ That in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any spiritual gift as you wait for the revealing of the Lord Jesus Christ. What Paul says is you don't lack any gift you need. Here it is. If God calls you, he equips you. He is enough for your service. God calls you to himself. He pulls you out of the waters of sin. He puts you in the lifeboat. And then in the lifeboat, who is Christ himself, he will provide every single thing you need to serve him. He is enough for your service. He is enough. He will give you what you need to do his work his way. Now, Paul says an interesting thing here. Even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you. What does that mean? We'll learn more about this as we go through the book of 1 Corinthians. But Corinth was a messed up place. Sin abounded in Corinth. Uh, It was multicultural. Uh, It was a city of great business. uh, But it was a city of great sin. And here is a church, new believers in the city of great sin, and they struggle with sin too. But something happened, and they were different. Christ was confirmed among them because they spoke and thought differently. The testimony of Christ was confirmed among them. Let me ask you a question this morning. Those of you who sit here this morning and you are in a situation where sin abounds, either at work, you've just gotten home from college or at high school, you're in a situation where sin abounds. Do people look at you and say, there's something different about him? He's not like the rest. She isn't like the rest of those students. Is the testimony of Christ confirmed among you, as Brandon was talking about, by the way you lead your employees, by the way you parent your children, by the way you live in the world in which you live? Is the testimony of Christ confirmed among you? These believers stood out in Corinth. People would look at them and say, hey, they are different. We'll discover later in this chapter the marked difference is that they were people of the cross. People of the cross. Now, we say that today, and some of you are wearing gold crosses or wooden crosses or diamond crosses, and the cross today is a really a celebrated, fascinating thing. 
But in the days of Corinth, dominated by Rome, the cross was the most gruesome way to perform capital punishment. As a matter of fact, you want to distinguish yourself today. Take the cross off your necklace, special order an electric chair, wear it around. And people will look at you and go, what? Become a people of the electric chair because the cross was the electric chair of that day. Being a Christian in Corinth was crazy. You celebrated a guy who died in the most embarrassing, humiliating way. What if we gathered to worship someone today who had died only 30 years ago in Raleigh in an electric chair? People would say even worse things than they say about us, wouldn't they? They would call us crazy. They would say, why have you left what you knew to follow this guy whom you say is God and God would die like that. People crucified were done so not on a hill. That is a misunderstanding. That old song you love, on a hill far away, really misdone. Uh, They most likely were crucified right by the road where people could walk by And look at them, and it was a deterrent for anyone else who dared do what they had done. Their their crime was written above the cross itself, as Jesus was done mockingly. Remember, hell, Jesus, what? King of the Jews. Insurrection was his crime, written above the cross. You follow a guy who was an insurrectionist, who was crucified, that's who you follow. To be a Christian in that day and this day means I talk differently, I think differently, I live differently, I give differently, and some of you, I will be as bold to say, sit here and you're not a Christian. There is absolutely no difference between your life and the guy who lived down the dorm from you, no difference. There is absolutely no difference in the way you sleep around with your boyfriend and your girlfriend. There is no difference. You're a church member, but you don't know Christ. And the most dangerous place for you to be is to listen to this sermon and others like it week after week, after week, because rather than softening a tender heart, it hardens an already hardened heart. You see, where I live, old house, I still have black soil. The very best time for me to go pull weeds is as soon as it's rained. Why? It's soft. But if you have red clay, You live in a newer place where they scraped off the top. They left the red clay. The very rain that softens the black soil at my old house hardens the red clay where you live. And that's what preaching does to people who think they know Christ 
but do not. It's most dangerous. Most dangerous. Christ is enough for your service. There was this testimony confirmed among the Corinthians. How so? That in every way they were enriched in all speech and all knowledge. When they needed to, they knew what to say and how to say it. Their thinking changed to where that they could engage this culture around them in the way they needed to. Christ was completely enough for their service. Until when? As they wait for the revealing of Christ himself. What does that mean? Let's go back to the analogy of the sinking ship. You're on a sinking ship. You see the lifeboat and you cry out, I need help. I need help. And the lifeboat rushes, rushes to the rescue and saves you. That's your past as a Christian. Christ pulls you into himself and you still go through the choppy waters. That's your present as a Christian. And you are in Christ through the choppy seas of life as you head to the shore. When one day he will be revealed, he will return, and that's our future as a Christian. And what do we do in the meantime? While we're in Christ, in those choppy seas, we see somebody else dying, and we rush to them. Do we not? And we say, hey, Christ rescued me. He can rescue you too. And we see somebody else and we say, Christ rescued me. Let me tell you how he can rescue you. And all of our life is one big rescue mission. All of our breathing time is a rescue mission. We no longer live for ourselves. We live for Christ. We live to rescue people. The old songwriter got it right when he said this, I was sinking deep in sin. Far from the peaceful shore, very deeply stained within, sinking to rise no more. But the master of the sea heard my despairing cry. From the waters lifted me now safe, and my love lifted me, love lifted me. When nothing else could help, love lifted me, love lifted me, love lifted me. When nothing else could help, love lifted me. And then he says, what do I do? I serve. All my heart to him I give, ever to him I cling. That's sanctification in his presence Daily live, ever his praises sing. That's sanctification. Love so mighty and so true merits my soul's best song. And this is service. Faithful, loving service to, to him belong. And then this is what we do, right? Souls in danger, look above. 
Jesus completely saves. He will lift you by his love out of the angry waves. He's the master of the sea. Billows his will obey. He your Savior wants to be be saved today. That songwriter got it right, didn't he? Christ is enough for your sanctification. He is enough for your service. And finally, Christ is enough for your sin. He is enough for the sin that haunts you, the sin that harasses you, the sin that so easily, the writer of Hebrews says, entangles you. Look at verse 8. We wait for the revealing of Christ. We live looking to the future. Who will sustain you to the what? To the end. Who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let me ask you a question. What have you done this week that if you think about it right now, you feel guilty? All of us can probably think of something. I wish I hadn't said that. I wish I hadn't thought that. I wish I hadn't lost my cool there. I wish I hadn't looked at that. I wish I hadn't gone there. Guilt is not an altogether terrible thing, but guilt is a terrible, inefficient, ineffective means of sanctification. Guilt won't make you more like Christ. Guilt will point out what you have done, but guilt is powerless to get you where you need to be. And so Christ is enough for your sin. He will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. What does that mean? If you are in Christ, when you show up before him one day, as we all will, you will not stand there with the list of all the things you have done that will keep you from his favor, his love, his grace. You will be guiltless. Why? Because when you called out to the lifeboat, you got nine times in this passage in Christ. You're in Christ. And when God looks at you, he doesn't see you. He sees Christ. Oh, if we could see ourselves today the way Christ, the way God sees us, if we could see ourselves the way God sees us, there would be a whole new way of living. In this passage, we call on Christ. We are in Christ. We testify about Christ. We wait for the revealing of Christ. And finally, we fellowship with Christ Max Lucado, in his recent book called Grace, says it this way. He says, a Chinese man named Li Fuyan had tried every treatment imaginable to ease his throbbing headaches. Nothing helped. An x-ray, are you ready for this, finally revealed the culprit. A rusty four-inch knife blade had been lodged in his skull for four years. I mean, how you missed that, I don't know. Thick skull, I guess. In an attack by a robber, Fionn had suffered lacerations on the right side of his jaw. He didn't know the blade had broken off inside his head. No wonder he suffered from such stabbing pain, Lucato says. And then he comments. 
We can't live with foreign objects buried in our bodies or our souls. What would an x-ray of your interior reveal? Regrets over an earlier relationship? Remorse over a poor choice? Shame about the marriage that didn't work? The habit you couldn't quit? The temptation you didn't resist? Or the courage you couldn't find? Guilt lies beneath the surface, festering, irritating, sometimes so deeply embedded you don't know the cause. God will present you, if you are a saint, guiltless in the day that Christ returns. Christ is enough for your sin. His death on the cross was enough for every sin you have ever or will ever commit. He is enough for your sin. You say, okay, Jerry, how does that work? Verse 9. Verse 9, if you write in your Bibles, you said underline the first three words of verse 9. God is faithful. God is faithful. 1 Timothy 2, verse 13, or 2 Timothy 2, verse 13, Paul says to Timothy, if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. God is faithful even when, and especially when, you are faithless. You say, Jerry, how does that look? Every parent in the room knows what I'm about to say. Every parent. We do our best parenting and the hardest work when our kids need it the most. That's when we're parents. Yeah, we're parents on all those other times, but we honestly, students, love you, but we appreciate the times when you allow us to put it in neutral and take a break. But then there are those times when we can't put it in neutral and take a break and we have to shift down. And when we do, we are focusing all of our energy on how to love you, how to be your parent, how to get you through this time in your life. And it is in that time that you have no idea, but we wake up thinking about you. We go to bed thinking about you. In the breaks that we have at work, our minds go to you because we love you deeply. We want to parent you well. We think of you constantly. That's the way God works. There are those times when God, for lack of a better phrase, can put it in neutral because you're getting it right and you're doing it right. But in those times when you aren't, God is working, in a sense, overtime. He is working to put things in your place, in your life, to parent you and to love you and to show you that he is deeply and intimately and wonderfully concerned about you. He is faithful. He has bound himself by certain rules he will live by that God is omnipotent, does not have to do, but he has done that. He will be true to himself. He will keep his promises. He will get you home safely and with joy in the journey. Amen? What he has started, he will finish. God hasn't started out on you only to shelve you, only to sit you aside, only to say, hey, I don't think she's going to make it. I don't think there's a chance for him. He called you, he redeemed you, he sanctified you, and one day he will present 
you. Christ will to the Father and say, hey, he's mine, she's mine, he's mine, she's mine, that's mine, that's mine. Yes, he's mine, she's mine. Here they are, Father. Here they are. I present them to you. Mine, they're yours now. This is the church. That's what we anticipate. We look forward to that day because God is faithful. He'll do it. He'll do it even when you are faithless. And some of you walk in here this morning and right now you know you've been faithless this week or you've been faithless for a month. And the Holy Spirit has made a house call to you today. And he is saying, he is saying, you're in Christ. I'm enough. I'm absolutely enough for you. God is faithful. You say, Jerry, practically, how does that work out? Right here, verse 9. By whom you were called into the fellowship of his son. We get to hang out with, enjoy, love on, and be loved by none other than Jesus Christ. How close is he? As close as you'll let him be. Let me just share one, maybe two accounts quickly of how this works. John and Kelsey Kingsley, that we pray for a lot. When John came to Christ, he was sitting on his porch looking at creation, and God used that tremendously to pull him to himself. When Kelsey's mother died, Kelsey wasn't even a believer at that point, but at her service, which I was privileged to lead, which was in the backyard behind their house, this rainbow comes up. I was there on that rainy Thursday when John buried himself, his little boy. And he did it himself. All the moving of the dirt. We step out from under that tent, tears streaming down John's face, and we look up, and there is a rainbow, complete circle rainbow, over that cemetery. Just a few weeks ago, about two weeks ago, their little baby girl, Maylee, was born. Claudia Kaiser, who is Kelsey's cousin, lives nearby. The morning Maylee was born, Claudia took a picture of a beautiful double rainbow over John and Kelsey's driveway. Two days ago, I received a text from John. It's a picture of a rainbow. And he says, when I am at my lowest, God is at his best. John and Kelsey feel amazingly cared for by God who says, let me throw a rainbow up in the sky at the most opportune time. Or just Wednesday, we took Trent to the doctor, Chapel Hill, only to have our fears confirmed and the doctor look at us and say, his right ear, is going the way of his left. How is he doing in school? We said, great. He said, that's unbelievable. Is he fatigued when he gets home? No, he should be. All his other senses are working overtime. He cannot hear. He said, we need to do a CT scan, most likely surgery on that right ear. Then we need to follow that up with Uh, an implant in the left ear. And then we need to follow that up with most likely an implant in the right ear. We're looking at three surgeries coming your way. And we need to move on this. Very concerned about the right ear. 
I look over at Wendy and tears start to come and I'm thinking, don't do that. Trent's watching you. Hold that in. So she does. And we leave there two and a half hours with this doctor at this practice. And we pull out and we get into heavy, heavy traffic in Chapel Hill. But for some reason, God positions us behind a minivan with a license plate that says Isaiah ISA 4319. We get to where we're going to eat, and when we do, we stop to eat on our way home, and I look up on my phone, Isaiah 4319. The difficulties we've had to switch doctors and just take a whole new route. In Isaiah 43, verse 19, I want to look it up and read it to you exactly so that I don't miss it. I said to Wendy as we sat there at Cracker Barrel, I said, honey, isn't God good that he'd want to talk to us like this? Verse 19, behold, I'm doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. And Trent and Fatty were going to play checkers, and Wendy and I were sitting alone there at the little table in Cracker Barrel, and I said, honey, this is what God's doing. We don't know what this is, but at least we know where we're going, and God's doing a new thing, and we're going to hold on to that. That's fellowship with the Son. It doesn't mean that The answer we wanted was, oh, good hearing in that ear. We can fix that. Uh, That's not the answer we got. But you know what? I would rather have God hold me than heal me any day of my life. I I would rather God just take me in his arms and be with me and walk with me and love me than to give me every single thing I've ever wanted in my life but not give me himself. Amen? Christ is enough is absolutely enough. And we get to fellowship with him. So here's how we're going to do that. Communion today. Jesus jarred his audience when he said, hey, (laughs) you're going to eat my body? And they looked at him and said, You are crazy. Stone this guy. Get him out of town. And 2,000 years later, do you know what we do? And deacons, you can come forward now and be ready so that we're ready to serve this. 2,000 years later, do you know what they do? We, We eat his body and we drink his blood. It's not his real body and it's not his blood. It is a fantastic and wonderful symbol of the body and the blood of Christ.